and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Darling, but first I'll say this, I've decided to marry you. I've decided to marry you. Fee, For your gracious bestowment, yes, Wadsworth, I told you, I'll be just a moment! Now, Monty, dear, I think I now should go. Oh. But I still want to marry you. Even so. I decided to marry you. Just go. Oh, I'm longing to marry you. No. Yes, I'm delighted to marry you, marry you, marry you. Yes, you must go. First, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. Look, we have a lot to talk about here in this opening segment, a lot more than usual, so let's just get right to it, okay? The Grinch musical was terrible. I turned it off within half an hour. I just could not sit through another second of that bizarre, fucked up material that I am not convinced. I am not convinced children would be entertained by that, and I, as an adult, certainly was not entertained by the Grinch musical. So if you were wondering how I felt about that little multimedia event, that <laughs> that moment of corporate synergy, I was not a fan of it. But I want to get into my follow-up regarding our last subject, Golden Boy. I promised an evaluation and assessment of its script, its book. I sat down with it, I read it, and I have that report for you. So let's get into that now. If you'll recall, Golden Boy first premiered on Broadway as a play in 1937 before being adapted into a musical in the 1960s. Clifford Odets wrote the play as well as the musical's book, which was rewritten by William Gibson after Odets died. The published edition of Golden Boy's book opens with a 14-page preface from Gibson, one which details his relationship to the musical and Odets. Are we on the same page so far? Do we have our sea legs? Wonderful. Gibson first met Odets through a playwriting seminar at the Actors Studio, and the two became friends after Odets attended a play Gibson had directed. That play, Rocket to the Moon, was performed by a troupe of psychiatric patients at an institution where Gibson's wife happened to work, but that's neither here nor there. I suppose I simply thought it was interesting. When Odette's suddenly fell ill, Gibson flew to California to visit him in the hospital and begin the process of sorting through the playwright's immense collection of books, records, and notes. It was during this time Gibson discovered an early draft of Golden Boy the musical. Gibson was decidedly not in favor of his mentor's latest project. From the preface, quote, I rather disapproved of the whole project, which seemed a cashing in upon the current scene, and it would be a year before I understood what Clifford's eye had seen in it. I knew only that if this text went into production, a swarm of problems would arise and no writer's hand would be there to meet them. It lay dying on a hospital sheet. I had a brief fantasy of offering my services to the producer, Hillard Elkins, whom I did not know, but concluded that my expectation of being 
indispensable to him would not necessarily coincide with his. I thought if he wanted me, he would call me, and a year later, he did. Odette's had long since passed away by the time Golden Boy opened in Boston, and the state of the musical was not pretty. Gibson was dismayed to find the book had been, quote, gutted, quote. Audiences were, quote, yawning, quote, and the show's star, Sammy Davis Jr., was in a, a quote, impotent rage, according to Gibson, quote, quote, quote. Producer Hillard Elkins described the current book as a, quote, scissors and paste job put together by a committee of non-writers after Clifford's death, quote. Another writer who caught the show in Boston described it thusly, quote, it ain't N-I-G-G-E-R enough, quote. Who was that writer? Was that writer black? Who is this person? Did Hillard Elkins ask any black writers to improve this book before he settled on William Gibson? I have questions, and the preface is refusing to answer them. After a great deal of hamming, hawing, and hand-wringing, Gibson agreed to rewrite Golden Boy's stinky, stinky book. The goals were clear but daunting. Number one, honor the style and thematic intent of Odette's. Number two, update the hammy 1930s dialogue, which everyone agreed sounded false as delivered by black characters living in 1960s Harlem. And number three, address the issue of interracial romance that Sammy Davis Jr. cared about deeply. Speaking of Sammy, from the preface, quote, One of my deeper doubts, and as a reminder, this is Gibson talking, one of my deeper doubts was my capacity to write for and about Negroes, his word, not mine, and when Hillard Elkins reminded me that we had an expert consultant in Sammy, I said yes, the only way I could envision any white man daring to take pencil to this would be in collaboration with Sammy on every line. Doing so would be to educate oneself on a sizable segment of American life. Sammy's pitch was less abstract. And to my wife, his parting word was, help! Quote, Gibson wrote an entirely new script that went into rehearsal while the first version of the show was still being performed. An additional choreographer, Herb Ross, was brought in to create fresh dance sequences, extra set pieces were built, and Arthur Penn agreed to replace the show's original director, who is pointedly not identified in the preface. The Broadway version of Golden Boy was, per Gibson's own assessment, a bit of a mess in its own right. Quote, it was never possible for us to bring in a truly organic show. The components we had to blend, music, book, casting, lyrics, dance, sets, were so disparate the union was not unlike a shotgun wedding. The daily revisions to meet musical changes cost us much of Clifford's dialogue, and the reviews we garnered reflected its inner incompatibilities. Clifford's son was with us in New York on opening night, and although after seeing it in Boston he had planned to picket it with a maledictory banner, we rewrote his opinion too, which meant something to me. Quote, Based on a reading of the book, I have to agree with Gibson's assessment. The scenes are filled with blunt, combative dialogue delivered by characters who don't talk so much as bark at each other. A lot of fiery questions, accusations, demands, etc. The musical numbers, by comparison, sound like they've been shipped in from another, sprightlier show. Put another way, Joe works well enough as a character in the book scenes. He's complete in terms of a portrait. But once the songs kick in, we're not watching Joe. We're simply watching Sammy Davis Jr. at a nightclub. 
the personas can't really clash because they're so wildly, innately disparate. I'm sure it didn't help how Gibson viewed the musical format as largely harmful. Quote, I have never taken an interest in the musicalization of plays on which our theater complements itself as having created a new form. Its accomplishment seems to me to consist mainly of replacing good writing with platitudinous music and dance. Half a million dollars was impotent to do anything more than denature the artwork Clifford's play had been written as. Quote, You'll notice Gibson drops the word impotent at least twice in this preface. It makes you think he has almost nothing to say about working with Strauss and Adams, describing them as, quote, another humorous pair, quote, and summarizing their contributions to Golden Boy thusly, quote, whatever the show might be lacking, it was not extracurricular jokes, quote. This does not strike me as a compliment. Other stray observations regarding the book of Golden Boy. The gimme sum number is actually less relevant to the plot than I had assumed. It involves Joe and an unnamed boy swapping cigarettes on a Harlem playground. The song ends, the boy runs off, and we move on. Can we say padding? The show makes room for a number of characters we would not have mentioned last week, including additional members of Joe's team and family. Few make much of an impact, though Joe's brother, Frank, is arguably the most well-drawn. There are scattered references to his work with CORE and protesting in Alabama, and he has one of the few lines of truly memorable dialogue. That dialogue is as follows, quote, Miss Moon, here's the truth. If Joe can't make your world and can't live in ours, he's a man falling in space. Quote, not bad. My opinion of the no more number improved somewhat upon reading the stage directions, which positioned Joe as a black man divorced from his own community, speaking of falling through space. As he wanders about the stage singing of romance and loss, the show's black ensemble appears, moving as a rally. They reach out to Joe through choreography, inviting him to join their cause, but Joe is too humiliated by Lorna's rejection to accept. In this context, Joe's use of the word slave is meant to contrast starkly with how it is used by the black ensemble. I'm not clear on why the team felt the need to make this particular point. Joe is a slave to love while they are slaves to the system or something, but it came as a relief to know they had a point to make. Golden Boy diminishes the civil rights movement by having it take place in the uh, distant and conveniently hazy somewhere else, and its references often come off as harried or ham-fisted, but its depiction of the era is not a complete disaster. One more thing before we switch gears and start talking about A Gentleman's Guide. From what I can tell, Eddie Satine is coded as gay? Act 2, Scene 7 sees the character massaging Joe's bare chest while delivering a drool-soaked monologue. Joe is described as lying rigid during said massage, but it only takes a moment before he breaks. Don't touch me, he says, moving away in disgust. Eddie, I like girls. Okay. Why are we throwing this in at the last minute? Sure, Eddie is a shady character who operates in suspect circles, this much we know, but... But, 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 what if he was also a lecherous homosexual? The epitome of shady suspect characters! Hachi machi, hey mama, welcome to the 60s. Whoa, 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 wow, whoa. 
<laughs> Let's get the show facts regarding a gentleman's guide to love and murder. Show me the show facts. Show them to me. Okay, okay. A gentleman's guide to love and murder was the 2014 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on November 17th, 2013 at the Walter Kerr Theater and ran for 905 performances. The book of the musical was written by Robert L. Friedman. The musical is actually based on Roy Hammerman's Hammerman's 1907 novel Israel Rank, the autobiography of a criminal, which had previously been adapted into the 1949 film Kind Hearts and Coronets. That film starred Alec Guinness. The music of the musical was written by Stephen Lutvak. The lyrics were written by Robert L. Friedman and Stephen Lutvak, the director of the original Broadway production Darko Tresniak. Musical director Paul Staroba. Choreography Peggy Hickey. Scenic design Alexander Dodge. Lighting design Philip S. Rosenberg. Sound design Dan Moses Schreier. And costume design Linda Cho. The original Broadway cast, I believe this is the full rundown here. We have Jefferson Mays, Bryce Pinkham, who I recently would have seen via Broadway HD in Holiday Inn. I'm sorry, Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn. We must be, we must be official with these things. The Gentleman's Guide cast also includes Jane Carr, Lisa O'Hare in her Broadway debut. Lauren Worsham, Eddie Corbick, Jeff Creedy, Roger Purnell, Jennifer Smith, Price Waldman, and Catherine Walker. Let's talk about Tony Knotts. So, the production won Best Musical, of course, but it also won the Tony Award for Best Book of a Musical, Robert L. Friedman, Best Director of a Musical, Darko Tresniak, and Best Costume Design of a Musical, Linda Cho. It was additionally nominated for Best Original Score, Robert L. Friedman and Stephen Lutvak. Well, I should say, the Best Original Score Award notably went to Jason Robert Brown's The Bridges of Madison County that year. Interesting. It's always interesting to me when you win Best Musical, but you can't manage to lock down Best Original Score. I always find that to be interesting. Okay, so the show, uh, Gentleman's Guide, I should say, was also nominated for Best Leading Actor in a Musical, Jefferson Mays, Best Leading Actor in a Musical, Bryce Pinkham, Best Leading Actress in a Musical, Lauren Worsham, Best Orchestrations, Jonathan Tunick, and Best Scenic Design of a Musical, Alexander Dodge. Okay, let's talk about the plot of A Gentleman's Guide. Yes, yes, yes. The year is 1909. From his lonely prison cell, Lord Montague Dicewith Navarro, otherwise known as Monty, writes in a journal on the eve of what could prove to be his execution. As he looks back on the events which brought him here, we flash back to 1907. 1907, Monty's life is in a shambles. He lives in a crummy flat. The love of his life, Miss Sibella Hallward, is threatening to leave him for a rich man and to top it all off, his poor mother, Isabel, has just died. K.O. Enter Miss Marietta Shingle, who reveals that Isabel had not always been a penniless commoner. No, no, no. She was, in fact, a member of the hideously wealthy, high-class Dicewith family. Isabel was disowned in light of her marriage to a Spanish musician, who is also dead. K.O. But Miss Shingle believes it is Monty's duty to reclaim his birthright. He is, after all, nine in line to inherit the prestigious and lucrative title of Earl of Highhurst. Sabella is pleased to hear that Monty may be moving up in the world, though she is reluctant to end her courtship with Monty's rival, Lionel Holland. Lionel already has a fortune at his disposal, whereas eight members of the Dicewith family would have to die before Monty inherits a cent. K.O. Monty thus becomes determined to ingratiate himself with the Dicewiths. The results are are less than promising. A letter of introduction sent to Lord Asquith Dicewith 
Sr. is rejected by the Lord's son. Asquith Jr. denies the existence of Monty's mother and advises our hero to never reach out to the family again. Fuck off, eat shit, essentially. Undeterred, Monty journeys to Highhurst Castle, the ancestral home of the Dysquits, and sneaks into the library to do a bit of research. It is there he runs afoul of Lord Adalbert, the current Earl of Highhurst, who effectively runs our hero out on a rail. Monty then turns to the family's resident clergyman, Lord Ezekiel, but the Reverend refuses to intervene on our hero's behalf. While exploring the bell tower of the family church, Monty takes note of Ezekiel's drunkenness and allows the sloppy old fool to fall to his death. K.O. Monty is suddenly overtaken by a treacherous murder murderous inspiration. While Lord Asquith Jr. is out skating with his mistress, Monty carves a hole into the ice and watches as they plunge into the inky darkness. K.O. Shortly thereafter, Lord Asquith Sr. apologizes to Monty for his son's behavior and offers him a plush job as a stockbroker. Things are looking up for Monty, though it looks like Sibella has decided to marry Lionel after all. Cheese and crackers! The rampage continues. Monty kills bee enthusiast and closeted homosexual Henry Dysquith by dousing the man's beekeeper uniform in lavender perfume, thus attracting a swarm of bees that sting Henry to death. K.O. Monty then meets and falls for Henry's sister, Phoebe Dysquith. Phoebe has a kind heart and, more importantly, is not in line to inherit the title of Earl, which makes her an excellent substitute for that no-good Sabella. So what if Phoebe and Monty are technically part of the same family? They're cousins or something, distant, distant cousins or something. The next target on Monty's list, Lady Hyacinth Dysquith, a renowned philanthropist. Monty, having disguised himself as a member of the Foreign Office, sends Hyacinth to war-torn Egypt, a leper colony in India, and an African jungle inhabited by cannibals, though she survives all three trips. Ah, cheese and crackers! Monty is baffled yet resolute. Upon returning home from Africa, Hyacinth falls into the sea when the gangplank suddenly collapses. All thanks to Monty, of course. Sayonara, Hyacinth! K.O. While courting Sibella and Phoebe at the same time, Monty finds a moment to kill Major Lord Bartholomew Dysquith by decapitating him with an overloaded bench press. K.O. Lady Salome Dysquith, a notably terrible actress, dies during a performance of Hedda Gabler after Monty fills her prop gun with very real bullets. K.O. At this point, the only two members of the Dysquith brood who stand in Monty's way are the current Earl of Highhurst, Lord Adalbert, who we have already met, and Lord Asquith Sr., the man who has treated Monty so graciously. The idea of killing Asquith Sr. troubles Monty, but that problem is solved when the man dies of a heart attack. K.O. Things start to get complicated for Monty when it comes to romance. Sibella wishes to continue her affair with our hero, though she does not regret marrying Lionel. What's more, she wouldn't mind if Monty Monty married someone out of self-interest, as she did with Lionel, but she forbids him from marrying a woman he loves. During this conversation, Phoebe arrives and proposes to Monty, even if such a marriage would damage her standing with the Dysquith family. What is our Monty to do? He's being pulled between two women, cheese and crackers! Love is such a tricky business! 
Lord Adalbert invites Monty, Phoebe, Sibella, and Lionel to Highhurst so that he may size up the current heir to his title. Upon their arrival, Monty is surprised to find Miss Shingle, who first educated him as to his identity, has been acting as Adalbert's servant for 39 years. Intriguing. Sibella soon learns that Monty and Phoebe are engaged. She begs Monty to reconsider, but he is steadfast in his decision. KO. Monty is also hellbent on killing Adalbert, having successfully managed to poison the Lord's dessert. But when the item, when the dessert item is served to Sibella instead, uh-oh, he knocks it to the ground in a fit of panic. Bang! Bizarrely, Adalbert drops dead later that evening, though no one can be certain of the cause. KO. But who cares how Lord Adalbert died? The point is that he's dead and Monty is now the one and only Earl of Highhurst. Monty marries Phoebe soon after, but is arrested during the reception by Scotland Yard's Chief Inspector Pinckney. The charge? Murder. K.O. To be more precise, the murder of Lord Adalbert. K.O. But Monty did not murder Lord Adalbert. He tried, yes, but he wasn't successful. Monty is innocent, technically. Sibella does her best to speak on Monty's behalf during the trial, but when she discloses how the Dysquith family exiled his mother, it only supports the theory that our hero was out for revenge. Thus, we are brought to the present, in which Monty awaits his sentence while writing in a journal from his prison cell. The jail's custodian, Chauncey, confesses that he too is a member of the Dysquith family. Huh. But unlike Monty, Chauncey had no interest in wealth or the problems that come with it, and so he chose to live a humble life. Monty is impressed and comforted by his last surviving relation, though their encounter does little to resolve his dire situation. The next day, Phoebe produces a letter written in the voice of Sibella that implicates her rival in the murder of Lord Adalbert. K.O. Shocking! Sibella produces a letter written in the voice of Phoebe that implicates her rival in the murder of Lord Adalbert. K.O. Confusing! The case is in a state of total disarray. Monty's guilt is suddenly in question, and since neither of the women can be convicted on their own, everyone is set free. Monty is thunderstruck. Not only have Phoebe and Sibella conspired to set him free, but they have agreed to share him romantically. Meow! The tables turn once more when Monty recalls how the journal, which contains a full confession, has been left in his prison cell, but a guard returns the journal to him in one final stroke of luck. As the show nears its happy conclusion, Miss Shingle confides to the audience that it was actually she who killed Lord Adalbert by poisoning his drink. Miss Shingle is a stone-cold killer. K.O. Chauncey enters to imply he has every intention of killing Monty and taking the title of Earl for himself. K.O. Monty hands Chauncey a deadly belladonna flower. Chauncey eats the flower, stumbles off stage, and presumably dies. K.O. The end! I should mention the plot of A Gentleman's Guide bears a striking resemblance to that of former podcast subject, Me and My Girl, not only in how it involves a common man discovering his high-class lineage, but in how that man is haunted by the ghosts of his ancestors. I didn't really get into this with Me and My Girl or this show. 
<laughs> but I'm doing it now. The big difference between those two shows is that the hero of Me and My Girl is actually encouraged by those ghosts to live up to his family name, while the hero of A Gentleman's Guide is threatened by them at every turn. Parallels, diversions, ghosts, it's all quite interesting to me, the musical man. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 2014 original Broadway cast album of A Gentleman's Guide, and I also watched the 2014 Tony Awards performance of the song I've Decided to Marry You. Alright, between you and me, I was not looking forward to watching this performance, it's true. I'm pretty sure I caught it on the night of the broadcast and returned to it at least once in the intervening years. My response was consistently muted. I would expel a caustic sigh and think, yes, yes, I've seen it all before, my dear chum. This is a factory-issue, door-slamming farce dipped in musical comedy sugarcane. Am I supposed to be impressed? Well, spoiler alert, it's December 2020, and I am fucking impressed. The diorama set piece by Alexander Dodge is tantalizing. I don't know if I want to live in this room or pop it into my mouth like Turkish delight. And speaking of pop it into my mouth, how have we yet to induct Bryce Pinkham into the Cream Pie Cutie Club? It's been quite a while since we welcomed a new member to our ranks, but if anyone deserves an invitation, it's Bryce Bing Bong. Ding dong, hello. I can understand why two women would agree to share Monty when he looks this delectable. Bryce is positively shimmering in this clip. But let's be a little less horny and a little more serious, okay? Let's call this performance out for what it is, a fabulous showcase of physical comedy. Pinkham is throwing himself around like a ping pong ball. Lisa O'Hare and Lauren Worsham are in glorious physical synchronicity and their timing in relation to the doors is astounding. I am not worthy, none of us are worthy. Attention must also be paid to Jefferson Mays who introduces this performance. Like Alec Guinness in the film Kind Hearts and Coronets, Mays played every single member of the Dice with family, every single member of that family. And throughout the intro, we watch him transform into three of those characters. Here is where I need your help, fair listener. I'm fairly certain the first two characters we meet are Lady Hyacinth and Reverend Ezekiel, but who is third? Who is the third person? The glum fellow in the Alfred Pennyworth suit. It's driving me Transylvania batty. In any case, this is a startling reminder of how much laser-like focus goes into what we casually refer to as the magic of theater. Mace is demonstrating the sort of precision you see in top-tier athletes. And don't even get me started on the stagehands who assist him. Are you kidding me? I highly doubt I could pull off one of those quick changes, let alone three. I assisted with a quick change back in college, and the actress wound up wearing her dress backwards. She was furious with me, and who could ever blame her? I fucked up, Sarah. I'm sorry. Guide to Love and Murder may technically begin with an overture, but at a brisk 15 seconds, it's less of an overture and more of a theme song? A delightful treat of a theme song, but a theme song nonetheless. 
A warning to our listeners, watch out for that melody line you just heard. The melody line will sneak up on you and find a way into your heart. It struck me as quaint and forgettable at first, but upon its return for the Act 1 finale, I could not help but recognize its value. So charming, fizzy, catchy, and fun... I'm not sure why I went out of my way to warn you about that, but consider yourself warned. Lovely surprises are out there waiting to spring themselves on you at all times. Have you heard of the Dicequith family? The Dicequiths? Why, yes, of course. Hasn't everyone? Then you've heard of Highhurst Castle? Of course. You're aware, then, of their position, their vast wealth and influence? Yes, yes. What's it got to do with me? You're a Dicequith. What? You're a Dicequith. No. Oh, the Dicequith blood is flowing through you. Me? A Dicequith? A genuine bona fide Dicequith. Rubbish. Of course, of course, you don't believe me, do you? You must be mad. Very well, then. If your mother was not a dice squid, what was her maiden name? She always insisted that the only name that mattered was my father's. A princess in every way The daughter of Lord Maximilian Till she met your father one fateful day She knew it was love and yet The family declared she'd been led astray By a climbing canonic Castilian Oh, let him go or else you'll know I love you will live to regret This was no idle threat You're a dice with You're a perfectly breedable dice with a Dicequith does her duty, don't forget. If there was any doubt as to where I would stand with this week's subject, that doubt was eradicated with the appearance of Jane Carr. Her effortlessly funny portrayal of Miss Shingle allowed me to breathe, breathe at a time when I was feeling overwhelmed. And her chemistry with Bryce Pinkham is sublime. Miss Shingle is roaring like a sea lion and poor Monty can barely squeak in the face of her news. I simply cannot get enough of their interplay. As an opening number, You're a Dicequith is pretty damn near perfect. It definitely establishes the tone of the entire musical, which I would describe as both loony and heartfelt. The characters may behave cartoonishly, but they are not cartoons. When they express tenderness, rage, or sorrow, I believe them and I feel for them wholeheartedly, which cannot be said of every farce. A high-class production of Noises Off, let's say, may be impressive and funny, but caring about those characters is impossible. They are puppets that occasionally bash into each other. They are not human beings. The team behind A Gentleman's Guide is going out of its way to offer a more nourishing experience, and I applaud applaud that ambition. I would much rather be drawn in by comedy than kept at a distance. I also enjoy You're a Dicequith because it calls to mind Sweeney Todd's Poor Thing while marching to the beat of its own drum. Would I like to see Andrea Martin take on the role of Miss Shingle? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Duh. Fuck yeah. Am I packing all of my remaining thoughts into these remaining seconds? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Monty? Monty. Don't you just love me in pink? 
Would you please? Maybe a flower for my hair. No, no. Yes, no. Violet. No, a tar of roses, I think. Look, you brought me chocolates. Oh, no, I don't dare. Do you hate these earrings? Now the truth. Don't be kind. I don't mind. Because I hate them too. No, no, no. Don't squeeze. Monty, you're a tease. I do without you. I have never met another man who's half as dear as you. You're so clever too, and you make me long more than anybody. Why are the men so dreary, Monty, and so deadly dull? No one holds a conversation half as beautifully as you. Well, actually, there is a matter of some urgency I should like to discuss. You haven't said a word about my dress. You're a brute. Look, see how it moves when I turn to three, one, two. It's a bit much for Clamham, but nevertheless, maybe just a bite, just to be polite. Monty, that's too tight. Monty, that's just right. Oh, what I put you I do without you. Don't you just love me in pink? <laughs> As a reminder, Lisa O'Hare made her Broadway debut with A Gentleman's Guide, though you would never know it based on her performance here. She is a polished pro coming out of the gate. I Don't Know What I Do is a sharp and sexy number, a number that packs more into two minutes of stage time than a show like Golden Boy can fit into five. More comedy, more character shading, more information, more everything. You can accomplish a lot with only two minutes of stage time, especially when someone like O'Hare is lending her vocals and timing to the material. Between O'Hare as Sibella and Lauren Worsham as Phoebe, my heterosexual side has been thoroughly activated this week. Hello, Bing Bong, Ding Dong. How hard could it be to express Monty's affection when performing alongside these supremely talented women? I would fall in love with them every single night. On a mythical scale, the dice squids prevail on a hill just outside of town. In a castle they love that is so far above they're accustomed to looking down. And the family ordains that the blood in my veins is more than a trifle impure. They conspired with each other, condemning poor mother to a heartbreaking life she could hardly endure. With no conscience or care, they disposed of an heir to their glorious family tree. Do I lie down and die, or determine to try to alter the course of my destiny? Otherwise, what will be? To think I could ever be Will I never be more than I am today? I can see me as a man of respect You could never detect Had once been so heartlessly cast away 
Am I foolish to dream I'll be Earl one day? A towering man among men. Then who could deny? Now and then, pigs can fly. Who I do identify as a gay man, and as a gay man, I have a firm desire firm to bring Monty as portrayed by Bryce Pinkham to my hearty, heaving, hairy bosom. Poor Monty sounds like a rain-soaked puppy at the top of Foolish to Think. Shivering, despondent, with eyes the size of dinner plates, I want to shower him with kisses. And when he's nursing that faint flicker of courage into a proper flame, ooh, forget about it, I want to shower him with kisses. But enough about me and the geeses. Is foolish to think worth your time? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Dud, doi, doi, fuck yeah. Hearing Monty rise out of his funk, break through a wall, and come out to the other side ready to fight for what he wants is just what I needed this week. He is the hero of our story. He is answering the call to adventure. These careworn storytelling tropes have stuck around for a reason, and I could not wait to follow Monty on his journey in the wake of this number. Foolish to think also proves a point I made last week regarding Golden Boy, namely that a song must shift gears if it begins with someone lamenting their lot. If the character does not change, if they never experience a revelation or make a decision or show a side of themselves that isn't bitter, then we're simply stuck in a quagmire, and that is not entertaining. Monty pulls himself out of his stupor. Monty is active. Adelaide, of Guys and Dolls fame, she moves through exhaustion, self-pity, intellectual curiosity, and flights of fancy before landing on rage. Adelaide is active, okay? She shows us all sorts of sides to herself. What does Tom Moody of Golden Boy do with his time? Nothing. He whines while sitting on his butt. And that, my friends, is why Everything's Great from Golden Boy is such a flop of a song. I don't understand the poor. I don't understand the poor. The lives they lead of wants and need. I should think it would be a bore. It seems to be nothing but stubbornness. Oh, what's all the suffering for? To be so debased is in terrible taste. I don't understand the poor. To be so debased is in terrible taste. I don't understand the poor. Don't understand the poor, and they're constantly turning out more. Every festering slum in Christendom is disgorging its young by the score. I suppose there are some with ambitions, say the pickpocket beggar or whore. From what I can tell, they do quite well. They're rising above in its work they love, but I don't understand the poor. They're rising above in its work they love, but I don't understand the poor. Where's the dignity? Where's the dignity? Where's the pride? Where's the pride? The ignominy. Putting the lame and the whore to side, why accept charity? I am perplexed by the attitude. I contend we extend them too much latitude. 
my tenants have no excuse. At Christmas, I give them a goose. Where's the integrity? Where's the gratitude? I don't understand the poor. How I long for days of yore. When nearly a vassal stepped in the castle, they knew not to darken your door. Now they barge in every Tuesday with a sickening, thickening roar. Why clatter and trample, set an example. We teach them to read, but do they succeed when they're hungry and frail? We feed them in jail. We send them off to war. I don't understand. I'm not being grand. I don't understand the poor. I don't understand. I'm not being grand. I don't. All things considered, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of every characterization offered by Jefferson Mays. There are occasions when it feels like the show is asking him to punch down instead of up, and that's an issue we'll explore further in a bit, but you can't say Mays is anything less than committed. He tackles Lord Adalbert with particular relish, exploding onto the scene with the brute force of a rhino and the finicky elitism of Henry Higgins. I don't understand the poor is basically why can't the English, as filtered through the uh, MAGA Brexit circuit, uh? and it's one of the best numbers A Gentleman's Guide has to offer. The music may be zippy, but the lyrics cast a harsh light on Adalbert's behavior. His views are not presented as foolish or harmless, but dangerous and rotten. This is a bad, contemptible person who deserves exactly what is coming to him, and watching him dig his own grave with each passing insult is extremely satisfying. I don't like to use the phrase, eat the rich, as as it comes off a tad Tumblr circa 2013, but I would 100% eat Lord Adalbert. It's all a matter of pacing In a moment, this moment will be With you rhythm of a violinist, I am sworn Where I leave the Isis thinnest to create a world To which the tragic lovers meet their time one could call this rather diabolic Is it strange to feel a wee bit melancholic Like a twinge of some remorse Of course, a conscience, I assume But no, as I'm cutting I am contemplating And the truth is it's a tad exhilarating Even though it is not inconceivable That I'll be caught Still it comes as quite a shock It seems a novice standing here with poison In his pocket and his murdering Is easier than he had thought Bid the word goodbye Eagerly we fly This is frankly easier than I had thought. The sound design on the OBC album is amazing, specifically as it relates to the assorted Dicequith fatalities. Reverend Ezekiel hurtles toward the earth with the portentous whine of an atom bomb before splattering like a mosquito against glass. K.O. Listening to Asquith Jr. ingest dark, freezing water while thrashing about like a ragdoll is bone-chilling. K.O. Again, they may act like cartoons, but these characters are repeatedly presented as being made of flesh and blood. Their deaths count for something, and I love that. It's easy to say, eat the rich or bring out the guillotines, but murder is messy, and A Gentleman's Guide will not let us forget that for a moment. Needs a little 
helping hand Who'll be there, it's almost guaranteed No one else could ever really understand Only another man knows what you need And when a man has fallen down upon his knees In such a moment, who'll be better than Someone who's self-controlled Someone who's strong and bold Someone who's good as gold It's better with a man Better with a man Then you agree, my friend? Indeed I do When a man is lonely He can always find Another man who's feeling just the same Drink will help you Get your troubles off your mind You'll both be <laughs> blind Before you know his name Rousing climax when your horse comes in. Come on, Ponzo, come on. We'll cheer as loudly as he can. Only a man would see the meaning of victory. Oh, the camaraderie. It's better with a man. Better with a man. Women have much much to recommend. Lord knows I've had my share. It's not like I'm shaking with anger over here, but let's just say what needs to be said about Henry Dysquith and move on. Henry is gay, and we're supposed to find that hilarious. He is gay, closeted, and trying to pass as straight. So that's what, three times the hilarity, I suppose? Welcome to 2014, and Mama, welcome to 2014. Oh, 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 God. What is the point of Henry being gay? It's not like he's pretending to be straight while rooting out and punishing other gay people. He's just pretending to be straight. He's in the closet. Is that supposed to be contemptible? Well, he is married to a woman, which makes him a liar. And that sin puts him on the same chopping block as all of the other Dysquits. Well, he's also a crooked landowner. Yeah, but we really seem to be focusing on the whole gay thing. We wrote an entire song about the gay thing. We're not punching up here. Making fun of gay people and how bad they are at passing for normal is not punching up. What I find most disturbing is how Monty actively cruises Henry throughout this song, Better With a Man. He is luring a love-starved gay man into a false sense of complacency for the purposes of killing him. Like, no thanks, not fun. If you are having fun watching this, then I deserve to be suspicious of you. I would have possibly given this number the benefit of the doubt if Jefferson Mays happened to be gay, but it would appear he is not gay or bisexual. He is also not trans, but that did not stop him from starring in I Am My Own Wife. Whoops, that's a decision we would not be making today. Hopefully, maybe we would. Oh, Jesus. An oyster shell itself is unassuming, but look inside, you'll find a pearl. The man Otherwise is unpresuming May share the same blood as an earl Do not dismiss a woman of position She can be tender-hearted, have no doubt The world would be in awfully good condition If we could all live Inside out I will 
hop aboard my high horse for another jolly ride in two shakes of a lamb's tail. Don't you worry about that. But for now, I want to praise Lauren Worsham, whose voice evokes a brilliant bouquet of buttercups. I nestled into Inside Out within a matter of seconds, and that is a testament to Worsham's innate warmth and tenderness. It must be said again, you have to admire a show that can pull off madcap pitch-black comedy as well as quiet moments of introspection. That is a difficult balancing act, but A Gentleman's Guide keeps itself aloft more often than not. And I am with Phoebe. Why can't we live Inside Out? I want to see everyone as they are at all times. That's easy for me to say, as I never shut the fuck up about what's going on inside my head, but everyone else should catch up. Catch up, you hamburgers! Where will my largesse be truly appreciated? I need a place so low that hope itself has been abandoned. You've heard, of course, of the untouchables in India? India? Land of Hindus and Muslims, of tamarind and saffron, exotic and unknowable. That's it. We'll find ourselves some lepers in the Punjab. The hopeless and the wretched and the cursed. Forgotten and unblessed. unblessed. I'll take them to my breast. If Daisy Greville doesn't get there first. When we arrive, they'll hobble out to greet us. Their toothless grins would melt a heart of stone. And every dilettante will envy me and want a colony of lepers of her own. Remember when I pointed out how I don't understand the poor did not normalize Lord Adalbert's inarguably atrocious attitudes? Well, Lady Hyacinth Abroad, this number that we just heard a bit of, is absolutely normalizing its character's attitudes. Hyacinth is a self-possessed philanthropist who looks down on the people she aims to help. She reduces entire nations and cultures down to a list of racist tropes. Hyacinth is racist, full stop. Do we really need her slipping into offensive racist accents to drive that point? home? No, no! The offensive accent cannot be employed by well-meaning theater artists to mock those who would be classified as the real enemy. If you use the accents, you lose. This number can and should be performed without them. No denying his humble start, but it fills up this poor old heart when I see how well he's done. Look at him, all the loyalty he has shown, how my fondness for him has grown. Till he's almost like a son Some might have thought him unsuitable How quickly he's earned my respect Who would think That the dice with me cast aside Could become such a source of pride He's the last one you'd expect 
The last one you'd expect is probably the last number you would expect to pull on my heartstrings, but it's been a tough little week for this tough little queen, and this tough little queen was ready to embrace unvarnished affection. There is so much affection coursing through this Act 1 finale. Lord Asquith Sr. may have condemned Monty's mother to a life of poverty, he did that, but he also brought Monty into the fold and gave him opportunities no other Dicequith would. Does that absolve him of his past crimes? No, but it ain't chicken feed either. Maybe I'm just in the market for a father figure who doesn't have a problem with expressing basic pride. Who knows? The universe is expanding in every direction at all times, and there is nothing we can do about it. We are but star stuff. I knew this week was doing a number on me when it took me several minutes to pick up on the central joke of this song. It's called The Last One You'd Expect because Monty is both the last one you'd expect to rise above his station and the last one you'd expect to murder you in cold blood. Simple enough, right? Well, like I said, it took me a while to catch up hamburger. Oh, it has a double meaning. Will wonders never cease? I can barely lift my own head. Why are all the dice quiz dying? What grisly sort of plague is going round? It seems with every day a dice quiz slips away and here we are assembled putting another one in the ground. Do forgive me if I scoff But is it not a trifle odd How they've all gone off to God Suddenly they're congregating underneath the sod Oh, why are all the dice quits dying? What a tasteless way of showing off Why are all the dice quits dying? It seems that all of London's shaken to the core. To lose one relative, one can certainly forgive. But how can you excuse losing two or three or four or seven? Why are all the dice quits I can't remember the last time I was this impressed by the collective personality and power of a Broadway ensemble. Every voice heard within Why Are All the Dice Quits Dying is remarkably distinct. I can see any one of these side characters spinning off into and supporting their own musical, and those glorious distinctions are not worn down for the sake of a flat, homogenized group sound. This ain't no choir, bub, okay? The ensemble is a character unto to itself. They sound carefully curated instead of merely assembled, and I dig that, baby. What else do I dig about this number? Why are all the dice quits dying? I'll tell you this much. I dig any reference to the importance of being earnest, and I dig the following lyrics. Quote, do forgive me if I scoff, but is it not a trifle odd how they've all gone off to God? Suddenly they're congregating underneath the sod. Quote, the phrase congregating underneath the sod is Cookies and milk for me, I must say. She seemed tense and alone, to desert, yet she flirted and batted her eyes at the men, and she rose from her seat. She reached for her sweet, every gesture was planned. Thinking no one could see, no one saw her, but in a bleak she put drops in his drink. That's a cool Cheers.
she's alive. She's unspeakably sly, and I hear that she drinks. Thank God, because for a second there I was worried Lisa O'Hare and Lauren Worsham would not have a proper duet all to themselves. Here it is, it's called That Horrible Woman, and it is a goddamn kick to the pants. Are these two working right now? I'm not made of money, you understand, but I would pay them to sing In His Eyes from Jekyll and Hyde on a weekly basis. Come on, we set up a Zoom meeting, you pop in, you sing the thing, you pop out, you get your money. If I need to pay in advance, I pay in advance. Let's talk terms. Okay, that's all I have to say regarding the score for A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. We will now hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Hey, get off me. Get off. Get away from me. Okay? All right. All right. Everybody just be quiet. Buddy Hackett is talking right now, okay? If you're talking, do me a favor and drop dead, okay? Listen up. I know that we're supposed to do this, uh, this 5678 coffee ad, but I'm just gonna tell you right now, ah, uh, these ideas stink. I'm not gonna talk about my Broadway credits. No, no, no. Viva Madison Avenue, I had a ball. Eddie Fisher and Buddy Hackett at the Palace. What is this? I'm not talking, I'm not going down the memory road with you people. No, no, no. Hey, get off me. Get away from me. Get away from me. Why do I need makeup, huh? Why are you coming at me with that brush and that powder puff, okay? Why don't you just Drop dead! Well, I'm going to tell you right now what the premise of this ad is going to be, okay? I'm not going to be talking about my Broadway credits or anything like that. You're not going to get Buddy Hackett, though. Oh, he's such a nice guy. Uh, fuck that. No, drop dead. We're going to be doing a Shapoopy ad, okay? And I'm going to be on the toilet, okay? I'm going to be on the toilet, and you're going to throw in some sound effects of flushing and farting and this and that and the other, and I'm going to say Shapoopy a lot. And I'm going to talk about how the coffee made me Shapoopy. And if you don't think that's funny, you can drop dead. Okay, Shapoopy. Shapoopy, shapoopy, the coffee made me poop. Shapoopy, 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 the coffee made me poop. That's all you're getting from me. That's all you're getting from me. No, get away from me. Get away from me. Get away from me. Get away from me. Don't you touch me. I'm done. I want my check. Give me the checky. I want the checky. Sam, Sam, give me the checky. I want the checky. Body Hackett wants to go. Final thoughts regarding A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Nix, the funny racist accents, funny in quotes there, fix Henry and you will have yourself a damn near perfect musical comedy, I say. I say in the vicinity of perfect, let's go with that. No need to go crazy. Now, as a reminder, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder won the Tony Award for Best Musical back in 2014. The other nominees that season were After Midnight, Aladdin, and Beautiful, the Carol King musical. I'm going to allow, despite my complaints earlier, I'm going to allow A Gentleman's Guide to keep its best musical medallion. No need to take that away from the show at this point. We are now going to rank A Gentleman's Guide against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on The Musical Man. As always, if you want to see that full rank and rundown, that breakdown, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod, go to our likes, click on the first tweet you see there. It's going to take you to a Google sheet. The second tab provides that fucking information. <laughs> 
That second tab provides that fucking information. I'm going to place A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder at our number 21 slot between the producers at number 20 and Grey Gardens at number 22. It's true, it's true, I tell you. I don't have any show-related ephemera for you this week. I tried my best. I looked up all sorts of fun Bryce Pinkham videos, but I just didn't find anything that spoke to me. I didn't find anything that spoke to me. I say it to you twice for the sake of emphasis. So we are going to just move on. We're going to move on, and we are going to determine which show we discuss next. How do we do that? Well, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, The Year 1345. Whoa, baby, whoa! Everyone ready? Then away we go, baby! Doki, we have landed in the year 2003. We have already covered two of the nominees from this season, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, Hairspray, and a nominee, Amore. So we are going to be talking about another nominee from that season. It ran for 1,303 performances, and that show is I'm Moving Out. It's not called I'm Moving Out. Jonathan, it's called Moving Out. Moving Out! No G on the end. Moving with an apostrophe. Okay, all right. So Moving Out is going to be our next subject. We'll actually be taking another week off, okay? So this episode will drop on Wednesday, December 30th. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support this podcast financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate one three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you get Monday early access to these main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout out each and every week. Thank you for donating at least one dollar a month. Anton Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marques, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get access to our series of bonus episodes. We talk about the 73rd annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage production Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. You also get season one, 12 episodes of our special series, Radio Boy, and you get access to M3, the movie musical man. That is returning to the Patreon feed on December 23rd, okay? We're coming back, baby. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You also get season one, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, that is our high school musical podcast, and a special episode all about Julie and the Phantoms. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You get to pick the musical. 
Castle. You also get seasons one and two of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. We're in the final stretch of season two. We only have a couple more episodes left for that season. So, you know, get on board for it, baby. You also get access to our Broadway and Chicago reviews and Shout About It, volumes one and two. What are those? Well, those are collections of five, six, seven, eight ads and musical shout outs from the first 50 episodes, baby. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus the Snub Club season one, 12 episodes. That's a special series all about Broadway musicals that were snubbed. They were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It's true. Okay, so if you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a five-star review. We want 65 star reviews. We have 34, okay? That number is not moving. It has not been moving. We need to get that number up, okay? Write a five-star review. You have no idea how happy that makes me to read all of the old reviews, but those brand new reviews, oh, they're coming up right fresh out of the oven. I love to read them. And if we get to 60, if we get to 65 star reviews, I will release a special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. So if you're interested in hearing that, write that damn review. You can also stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny for all that they do. Oh my God, all that they do. What a trivialization. Their amazing, astounding work and support. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous music. <laughs> you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night.